This is the UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. Thanks for listening today to the UU Perspective, where you hear interviews from Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists from around the world, giving their thoughts and opinions about what is happening and what we can do to change the world. So sit back and relax and enjoy the conversations you're about to hear. My co-host today is Ali Tharp, the program manager for Commit to Respond, and we will be interviewing several attendees who went to COP21, and we will be talking with William McPherson and Jan Dash, and they're going to let us know what the results of the conference was and what happened and what their thoughts are about the future and how we can get involved as congregations. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what you're about to hear. All right. Well, thank you, Bill, Allie, and Jan for joining us today. And we're very pleased to be able to share with everyone about the COP21 and what had happened in Paris. And I would like to actually first start off by getting some introductions out of the way and having each of you tell a little bit about yourselves and what you do inside of the UU community. And uh, let me start with Jan. All right. Well, uh, so uh, I'm a member of our UU congregation uh, here in Monmouth County, New Jersey, uh, have been for many years. Uh, And uh, uh, in that, just locally, uh, started a climate action team, which is very active. We have a number of activities that we uh, uh, have, uh, have participated in. Uh, and then in a wider sense, uh, I had uh, started a website, which used to be the UU-UNO Climate Portal, and it's now just the Climate Portal, uh, which I've spent uh, seven years on, probably 3,000 hours of work. It's a kind of soup to nuts website that, that I hope is uh, useful for everybody in various aspects of uh, climate change from uh, the science to the politics to mitigation, adaptation, education, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so um, uh, that's uh, one of the things that I've done. Uh, I was uh, at the uh, General Assembly uh, where the um, statement of conscience of global warming and climate change uh, was uh, implemented. Actually, some of the, a little bit of that language is actually mine. I participated in that, and uh, one of the things that I think is uh, uh, very important uh, in that uh, statement is uh, that it's a pretty comprehensive statement, uh, and uh, my feeling is what we need to do is really implement it. So those are a couple of things I've done. Uh, One of the things that actually enabled everybody to go to Paris was uh, some lead-in work that uh, I did with the UU-UNO um, office uh, in order to get the office, at, which had become part of the UUA at that point, uh, credentialed with us, what's called ECOSOC, which is the UN body that uh, enables obs- credentialed observers uh, to go to the uh, part of the conference that has 
the official events and so forth. So uh, that's a you know a little bit of uh, what I've done. I'm passionate about climate change. Have worked on it for about ten years. Spend probably I say ten to twenty hours a week outside of work uh, doing various aspects of uh, climate change activities. Uh, I think it's the outstanding moral ethical and survival issue of our time. All right, great. And Bill, just a quick introduction about yourself. Yes, I'm a retired environmental diplomat. I worked in Geneva as a U.S. officer uh, representing the U.S. at the World Meteorological Organization and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And after I retired, I did a number of years of reporting on environmental conferences on climate change for Earth Negotiations Bulletin is an international reporting service. Mm-hmm. And I've written three books on climate change, one called Ideology versus Science. And the most recent one was Sabotaging the Planet, Nile and International Negotiations. And uh, a member of the University Unitarian Church in Seattle. We have a climate action team. And part of my uh, work with the Unitarian Universalist Association has been as the president of what we call the UU Voices for Justice in Washington State. Mm-hmm. And so I'm quite active in supporting things like a carbon tax for Washington State, governor's carbon rule and other issues like criminal justice as well. All right. Okay. And, and Allie, we've had you on before, but you now actually have a new position with Commit to Response. So tell us about that. All right. Well, I've been, I'm kind of in a dual place. I, I started out with Commit to Respond, which is a faith-wide initiative, um, a collaboration between nine UU organizations um, for climate justice. And I started out as representative of the UU Young Adults for Climate Justice, which is a community that I've coordinated for the past couple years, just about. And um, then in the past three months, I moved into a program manager position and other people in the network filled in um, as the representative on the steering committee for the campaign. So um, did a little bit of... um, actual program organizing for Commit to Respond. Allie, I'll go ahead and let you take over with beginning with that first question. All right. Well, I guess we just want to make sure listeners who aren't as familiar with with you two experts, Jan and and Bill, um, if you would give a little bit of the overview um, of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change as... um, I mean, I can say really briefly, it was established through a treaty process in Rio de Janeiro at the Earth Summit in 1992, but people often, and in the news, it was just called COP21. So um, what exactly was the Paris Agreement and what exactly are um, COPs? And Bill, do you want to take that? And and then another question, since since you have such a history with it, is um, I'd be interested to know what the relationship is with the um, the International Convention on Climate Change and this COP framework for the treaty negotiations. Okay, as you mentioned, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change started 
in the early 90s, actually 1988, and its first report was 1990. And then its um, impetus to do something about climate change resulted in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, Rio 1992. In 1997, the Kyoto Protocol was negotiated. A lot of the negotiation was led by Al Gore, and the U.S. got a lot of its ideas into the Kyoto Protocol, but we never joined it. Then uh, the Paris negotiation process started with the Durban COP, which is COP 17, I believe. And there was a group set up called the Ad Hoc Working Group on the Durban Platform for Enhanced Action. That's a real mouthful, so they just shortened it to ADP. (laughs) ADP met uh, met, uh, for four years and was very intensive in its negotiations in the last year. That is all of 2015. And uh, they came up with the text of the Paris Agreement. Paris is COP21. COP stands for Conference of Parties. That is sort of the the legislative group under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. They actually pass the uh, agreements that take effect. And when the Paris Agreement was negotiated after COP 17, 18, 19, and 20, then the ad hoc group started the process of actually massaging all of the text and got it finished by about December 5th. The following week, December 7th through 12th, the uh, parties in Paris met very intensively, sometimes all night, and thrashed out the language. And they finally came up with the agreement on December 12th, very late in the evening, almost midnight on December 12th. And it was gaveled into effect by Laurent Fabius, foreign minister of France, who was also president of the conference. Can you describe for us what it was like to be there as an observer representing the UU Association? Yes, it was quite exciting. We were allowed to sit in on a lot of the negotiations. Now, we couldn't say anything, of course, as observers, but we saw how the arguments were proceeding. Unfortunately, some of the arguments were done behind closed doors, and they didn't allow us to see all of that. But we could see that there was real progress being made. So David Taylor and Doris Marlin and I sat in the room watching the negotiations for usually three or four hours each evening. They were most all at night. And finally, on the 12th, we watched them as they finished the negotiations. There was tremendous applause and congratulations of everybody. That was very exciting. We also attended some of the side events during the day, and we had the good fortune of meeting Gina McCarthy, the head of EPA, and some other government officials um, who are uh, making many of the decisions that go into U.S. position on climate change. And Jan, what was your experience like as an observer? Well, this is actually the second conference uh, that um, my wife Lynn and I attended. We were at uh, Copenhagen in 2009, and um, and this is so. This is the second uh, the second one. Um, I would say that when you're there, I would say you know personally, it's a very exciting experience. 
uh, you're constantly talking to people. Everybody's pretty much, there's some exceptions, but everybody's, you know, uh, heart is in the right place, and uh, you're trying to uh, talk about ways in which you can uh, make uh, climate change uh, less of a threat. Uh, and uh, so uh, there, there's lots of information you're you're constantly learning and so forth. In both of the conferences, uh, uh, I actually got to present something in the Copenhagen conference. There was a presentation that I made of uh, an NGO Committee on Sustainable Development statement called Climate Change Summary and Recommendations to Governments uh, at an off site called the Klima Forum. Uh, and uh, this time... Uh, I was on a panel with uh, with uh, uh, Peggy Clark, uh, uh, who had, with Commit to Respond, and a number of other people on uh, a side event on examining how nations have and should consider equity and justice in setting INDCs. Uh, my, my particular uh, my my particular aspect was the um, threat of uh, climate contrarian obstruction. Uh, that, that's what I that's what I talked about. Um, I would say that the one big thing that struck me uh, that was different from Copenhagen was the extent to which uh, businesses have woken up to the threat of climate change. And so I spent a lot of time at the business pavilion uh, listening to people talk. And uh, that is something that's very important because uh, in terms of how we are actually going to be able to implement solutions to try to mitigate climate change, uh, uh, private capital will have to play a very large role in this. Uh, governments simply don't have enough money. Uh, and uh, so uh, it was very uh, optimistic for me to see the extent to which uh, businesses were discussing in a very realistic way what climate change means, what they can do about it, what the obstacles are. And uh, that was very different from uh, the situation at, uh, at, at Copenhagen. Uh, the um, solution, I, I guess you're going to get into this, maybe to what extent the solutions of the Paris Agreement actually partially solves the, uh, uh, the problem in terms of uh, how we can get to the stated goal of two degrees centigrade above uh, pre-industrial levels by 2100. Uh, so I could talk about that, but I expect that you'll get into that a little bit later. I found, uh, actually, the result was uh, very optimistic. Uh, all countries agreed to the agreement. That's very different from Copenhagen, where there was some dissent. And uh, that is very positive. All countries have now agreed that we must act to try to mitigate climate change as best we can. What do you think's the biggest change in, like you're saying, from the previous conference where, you know, you had the dissension in with everyone coming together? What what was the the main like the cause of that? Do you think? Well, uh, the, the main cause was there was a, a total change in strategy in the uh, Kyoto Protocol uh, that uh, Bill mentioned, and then the subsequent conferences. Uh, the the idea was supposed to be that there were different types of countries, Annex A and Annex B, they were called, I believe, uh, the developed countries and the undeveloped and non-developed countries. And the developed countries, since on a cumulative basis, have put most of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, it was their responsibility to uh, solve the problem. Uh, I remember once meeting in Copenhagen, uh, the uh, U.S. assistant negotiator, now he's the chief negotiator, Jonathan Pershing, when we were waiting for the train 
uh, one time. He and uh, uh, I asked him about that, and he said, you know, because there are cumulative emissions, then there are present emissions, and then there are future emissions. And his, he said, well, the way it comes out in discussions with most of the underdeveloped countries is you cause a problem, so you fix it. And uh, so that was the attitude. There was common but, but differentiated responsibility language like that. Uh, and there, there were top-down solutions like this country will do this and that country will do that. That didn't work. Mm-hmm. And the big change here was, in a, in, a, in a way, a step forward and a step back. The step forward was that uh, each country agreed to do what it could or what it said it could in what was an intended nationally determined contribution, uh, becoming a nationally determined contribution after the agreement was uh, is ratified by that particular country. And that's the step forward was that each country said that they would do something. The step backward, in a way, was that it wasn't binding. So that these numbers are intent, but they're not binding. So that, however, did lead to complete agreement because everybody said what they could do in the national determined contribution. Uh, and so everybody agreed to the agreement. Uh, whereas, uh, it, it, so that's a bottom-up approach. And so that change uh, in strategy, I think, was the biggest tactical change that was made. And it, it, it was successful, at least, in getting an agreement that everybody could sign. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the uh, most meaningful moment that you had in Paris? Uh, I, I guess the most meaningful moment I had was after I got home, uh, when I uh, turned on the computer and watched the gaveling of the Paris Agreement uh, 30 seconds after it was introduced, because everybody had already agreed to it. Uh, that was just uh, elation. And I have to contrast that to the situation in, in Copenhagen, where uh, basically same thing happened. I was there for two weeks, but I couldn't really go the second week because they weren't letting, uh, they weren't letting uh, civil society people in after the middle of the second week. And so I just had to watch the results on the commercial TV and the results were, uh, I would say mixed. And so the elation that I had coming home after spending the first week in Paris, uh, was just watching the agreement, everybody agreeing on an, on, something at least so that we can move forward. Mm, okay. And Bill, how about you? That was exactly the same thing for me. I was there watching Lauren Fabius, the president, along with Ban Ki-moon, Secretary General of the UN, President Francois Hollande of France, and Christina Figueres, Secretary of UN Convention on Climate Change. All four of them standing on the chain on the stage and holding hands together, high celebrating. It was really quite a celebratory mood in the hall that night, and uh, it, it is the culmination of four years of hard work. And you don't see all the things that go on behind the scenes, but language is very carefully worked out, and everybody could agree. And that's what Jan said. It's very important that all. 194 countries agree. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we can't get this done. Now, of course, it isn't legally binding, and that's one of the big problems. And the commitments that were made, the nationally determined contributions, are not sufficient to keep below two degrees centigrade. But there's a five-year review mechanism 
one of the most important things that was agreed was this review mechanism. Mm-hmm. All countries have to submit not only what they promised, that is their nationally determined contributions, but what they actually accomplished. That will be measured very carefully. In fact, the U.S. is setting up a satellite system to measure each country's emissions. It's a very sophisticated system. And um, that, I think, is a very important step forward. Kyoto had a binding mechanism built in, but it didn't really work. And we have to give this a try now, see if it does work. So, Bill, I want to kind of jump into that a little deeper. Um, I'm curious about, since we know the country's nationally determined commitments are not enough, and it's the Paris Agreement even sets us a goal of trying to limit to 1.5 degrees Celsius warming, and we're not even mm-hmm. um, making commitments strong enough to limit to 2 degrees. So um, I'm curious why, given we know what people were willing to offer is not enough to what we say we're trying to get, why, do you, why is it still a victory? What aspects of the Paris Agreement are you most supportive about, and, and what gives you hope that it's actually um, a framework that will push us to where we could actually meet that commitment of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Yeah, as Jan said, um, this is different from Kyoto because all the countries participate. In Kyoto, it was just the industrialized countries, only about 35 countries. This is 194 countries, and it's essential to get the big emitters that were not in Kyoto. That's China, India, Brazil, Indonesia, and others. We have to get them involved in reducing their emissions. And actually, China is doing a pretty good job of it. India, not so good. But um, scientists have estimated, and it's really pretty rough estimation at this point, that if all of these contributions, these nationally determined contributions, they're called, are realized, we still would reach something like 3.2 degrees centigrade by 2100. So we have to ratchet back from the current promises or pledges that have been made and ask people to do more. So, for example, the U.S. has pledged 26, 28% reduction by 2025. Well, we should be at 30, 35% reduction or even more by 2025 and then 80% reduction by 2050. And the same with... Europe, it's promised a 40% reduction by 2030. They should be getting up to 60% reduction by 2030. It's all feasible. Just a very major effort that has to be made. The one and a half degrees part is a little bit unrealistic. I think scientists say we're just on track to do more than one and a half degrees. There's no way we can stable a one and a half. If I could just jump in. There are some... um, uh, if you go to the climate portal uh, and you look, there's a presentation that I gave uh, at the NGO CSD that I, I, I mentioned about the Paris conference. It's kind of a summary. There's a graph in there that talks about what Bill just said, that the current INDCs, if they're carried out, will lead to uh, an increase by 2100 of uh, over three degrees centigrade relative to uh, pre-industrial levels. But there's a graph, and I urge everybody who's listening to this to take a look at it, uh, because uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about exactly what that means. It's on page 13, 
and it shows by uh, by uh, regions, by countries, developing countries, China, India, United States, and Europe, if the INDCs are carried out, what the emissions look like as a trajectory between now and 2100. And uh, what you'll see is that the United States and uh, Europe uh, are, are decreasing, uh, and the increase, which actually stands in the way of reaching the two degrees centigrade uh, goal is mostly from uh, China, developing countries, and uh, also to a large extent, uh, India. Uh, and so the here's the conundrum, everybody. Here's the conundrum. The conundrum is that the United States and Europe have put into the atmosphere uh, about half of the allowable carbon budget. In other words, the carbon budget is how much carbon dioxide can be put into the atmosphere before we exceed the two degrees centigrade limit, let alone 1.5. So that's what's that, that's the history, but you can't do anything about that because that carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere on the average for timescales of at least 100 years. Then there's the current carbon uh, budget. And what's happening there is that on a country basis, although not on a per capita basis, uh, China is the number one emitter. If you do it on a per capita basis, then United States and Europe are far in excess of China, about a factor of three for the United States relative to China. And if you look at the United States relative to India, it's about a factor of 10 per person. However, because there's so many people in those countries, and if energy parity is going to be reached so that everybody has basically more or less the same energy going forward, then on the current trajectories that exist now of increase in energy use by all countries that are, you know, in, in, in the world, if they do, even if they do satisfy their intended nationally determined contribution uh, goals, the increase is largely not actually due to the United States and, and the European Union. So there's a carbon budget. And the problem is that who gets to use the car, who gets to put up the rest of the amount of carbon before the planet becomes unlivable? It's a real conundrum. And I urge you to have a look at this one graph, which I think will be very useful. I am uh, concerned uh, for basically two reasons. The first is that the United States, uh, although there is some uh, real progress in, uh, uh, you know, the clean power program that is, forms the base of the United States uh, uh, nationally determined contribution, that that is being obstructed in a very significant way by people who, uh, on paper at least, say the climate change impacts don't really exist. That's one big, huge problem. Uh, but on another scale, the necessity to deliver renewable resources to developing countries and a technology transfer so that they don't burn coal and so that the increase in regional emissions by various developing countries, uh, in, in, including China, in spite of its big push toward renewable energies, 
limits the um, temperature increase. The basic point is that by 2100, all countries have to stop burning fossil fuels. It, that, that applies to all the developing countries, uh, including China and India, as, as, of course, must happen for the United States and Europe. It, it's a huge problem. I think that uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. And uh, if we go into this with our eyes open, we can clearly see, I think, what the what the real problems are here. Dan has identified the real moral issues of climate change, and that's the carbon budget. And when I speak to churches, I often bring this up because we have a moral obligation to look at our own emissions relative to the world. So, for example, if we were to come down to India's level, we would drop our emissions by 90%, where the U.S. is an average is 20 tons per person, we'd have to drop down to two tons per person per year. And this is almost difficult, you know, almost impossible thing for us to do. But scientists say, unless we do that, the world is cooked. Well, we have to look at this as a real moral issue. Yeah, I would certainly agree with you, Bill. And from what I've read, the difference between 1.5 degree warming and 2 degree warming is millions of people's homes and lives. So the sense of urgency and, and that the push to, to get to something that politically is seen as unrealistic is because of that, because of the urgency of seeing those lives as just as important as the people here in the United States who, who feel somewhat sheltered from the impacts of climate change and don't see their home and, and who, do, who don't see their home disappearing. But I say that with the caveat that even people in the United States are losing their homes um, particularly in Alaska and Louisiana already. So to me, the, the sense of urgency is definitely extremely high. But I wanted to, I guess, carry on that conversation of moral considerations here and, and ask what role multi-faith, like the multi-faith movement, anyone who came from a faith organization kind of came together in a way. So I wanted to hear about that, what it was like to collaborate with different observers from different faiths and um, what role the faith movement played within this whole negotiating process. Well, we had a very exciting day with Interfaith Power and Light. And, uh, Reverend Sally Bingham, head of Interfaith Power and Light, was in Paris and made a presentation along with some of her colleagues. And I think there are people who listen to that. I'm talking about government decision-makers who listen to the faith community when they make a moral argument like we have to reduce our emissions. It's just a moral obligation. It's a matter of justice and fairness. And I think that's having some effect. I testify at the Washington State Legislature, and I'm often making this point that it is a moral obligation to do something about climate change. I don't know if it has any effect, but <laughs> I like to think that people do listen to that as well as to the more political arguments. I agree with what Bill said. I, I think that the real moral argument is that we, there, there are two moral arguments. One of them is connected with impacts on people now in different places, and one is connected with people in the future. And they're both extremely strong arguments for um, reducing 
carbon emissions, both for climate justice now, so it is a climate justice issue to mitigate climate change. We are now starting to see the effects, but they're small, even though they're large, even though they seem large now, they're small compared to what our descendants will feel. So uh, the real intergenerational equity aspect or the moral obligation of us to do something now so that our descendants have a livable world uh, is huge. In terms of the interfaith aspect, the first week uh, uh, there was a meeting at the U.S. Pavilion and uh, a number of representatives from different faiths were at that meeting and U.S. Uh, you know, officials w- were there in the room. And what they said was that it's very important. Uh, it gives, uh, there's a lot of influence that people have when they can use the word should. And that's our main weapon as or our main instrument, you know, uh, in the faith community is we can use the word should. We should do this. We should do this for the climate justice today, and we should do it for intergenerational equity uh, for people that are coming after us. So, And that's powerful. And they recognize, the U.S. negotiators recognize that, that this has had an effect. And so I, I think that um, uh, that's an optimistic thing for us, uh, because even though, uh, you know, for Unitarian Universalists, for example, we're a, a small or, you know, religious group, comparatively speaking. Nonetheless, uh, we can actually have a large impact, and I'm very hopeful that Unitarian Universalists will uh, come together in a more profound way than we have in the past in order to speak out and have an influence over climate policy and try to have a voice uh, at uh, not only at a local level, but on a national level. Uh, and uh, um, I, th- I think that that could be very productive. So what do you think it is that, as Unitarian Universalists, we can do to keep up the pressure for you know, just and urgent climate action on the international policy level? What is it that we can do? We do have a lot of intellectuals who are, are members. We have, for example... Of the professors of the Atmospheric Sciences Department at University of Washington, members of our church, University Unitarian Church, and they're very active not only in the church itself, but in the community. They work you know, with a number of uh, other faith groups, and we do uh, support some of the local movements here. We just had a break-free uh, session where people blocked the railway leading to an oil refinery, and uh, that was supported by our Unitarian churches. So there are lots of actions we can take. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing that you just said, Bill, that uh, I think the two things that Unitarian Universalists bring to the table is, number one, uh, we do think about the issues, and uh, we're we're well-informed on the average, uh, and there are uh, plenty of people that are experts uh, that are Unitarian, so that's the first thing. So we have a lot of we have, we have a lot of resources, and we do feel more urgency, so we do, you know, want to act. And so that's all, that's all on the plus side. Uh, there's a minus side. And let me just say what I think the minus side is. The minus side is that although we're very strong in, uh, in knowledge and desire to act, we're not organized. 
Mm-hmm. And so uh, I know that, you know, trying to get Unitarian Universalists to, to act together is a little bit like herding cats, but we've done it. We, <laughs> we did it with the divestment campaign. We did it with the action on immediate witness for, uh, you know, a strong agreement in Paris. And, uh, and we did it in 2006 for the statement of climate change. But so occasionally we do come together, but most of the time we're not, we don't act together. And so I think that the biggest single action that Unitarian Universalists could do is better organization. And I know Commit to Respond is uh, is, is trying to do that. Um, uh, there's a Unitarian Universal United Nations office facilitation of climate action teams that tries to do it. And the basic idea here is just to get all the Unitarian Universalists individually, they, you know, people can do whatever they want and should do whatever they want because we need a portfolio of actions to be successful. There's no single action. There's no silver bullet that we can rely on to actually solve the problem. But when it comes time to actually carry out some particular action or a, a statement that we want to make or something, it would be great, wouldn't it, if all Unitarians could be contacted with one single ch- email. Wouldn't that be great? You know, yeah. so that everybody can can wake up and act. And so that there's some... Uh, so let me just make a plug for the climate action teams here because I think it's an extremely important idea. It's, a, it's an organizational thing where you try... The goal is to try to have some group, it could be as small as one person, that wants to act on climate in some way in every congregation in the United States and Canada. And the idea is to connect in a network fashion, like just like the Citizens Climate Lobby, all the climate action teams together. So we have a network of dedicated people individually in every congregation that can then be called on to do something and act on climate. That's what you need. And so that, I, I think, would be a great way to get Unitarian Universalists so that they could have a strong leveraging effect on climate policy. I agree completely with that. And I want to mention one other organization that does help organize some of us Unitarians, and that's called the Coalition of UU State Advocacy Networks. I'm president of the Washington State Advocacy Network called UU Voices for Justice, and there are 22 or 3 other state advocacy networks all over the country, many of which are working with climate action teams in their states and working on climate issues and many other issues as well. Yeah, that seems very critical, especially because of the um, the Clean Power Plan being something that involves a lot of state action. And I just, I guess, want to make a, a quick shout out to the, the folks working hard in Pennsylvania with their state action network to get a ban on fracking in Pennsylvania, which has been a state so incredibly impacted by fracking, which is still toted by many as a bridge fuel, whereas in a lot of ways, it's actually leading us down to the path of climate chaos. So, yeah, it's uh, worse than coal. Yeah, we have uh, carbon tax on the ballot here in Washington State, and that's one of our, in fact, our top priority in the UU Voices for Justice. So each state has different things, but uh, they can be coordinated because they all feed into the whole climate change issue. 
So there, there's something else that I think is extremely important, and it's the generality of action on climate change. So the United Nations has, and I'm sure everybody knows this, but I um, just want to emphasize uh, sustainable goals. And there are a number of these uh, goals. Uh, they're the successor to what used to be called the Millennium Development uh, Goals. And the basic idea is to try to wipe out poverty uh, worldwide. And so this is all the social action and climate and justice issues that you can think of on a worldwide basis are summarized in these sustainable development goals. And number 13 is climate change, or climate action. And whenever you hear anybody speak about the sustainable development goals, uh, they will say that there is no solution, there's no long-term solution without a solution to the climate problem. So climate action in itself is action on justice. And I, I think it's extremely important to remember that because it, although there is a psychological problem sort of, well, it's very big, the climate problem is very big, and there are lots of things that we need to do, and it's very long-term and so forth, and, you know, people are hungry now. And that's all true, and we don't want people to be hungry now. But on the other hand, they, there will be a much greater incidence of hunger if we do not solve the climate problem. And so I, I think it's really important to emphasize that the moral and ethical aspects of acting on climate change are very, very general. They, go across, they cut across all of the social justice issues uh, that we care about. And uh, so, um, and that's also the message that my wife, Lynn, who was also in, uh, in uh, Paris, wanted to convey. So I want to emphasize that very strongly. All right, great. That's a very good point, yeah. Ali, I was going to say, do you have up on the Commit to Respond website what each of the states are doing? No, actually, I wish I could say that we did. Um, we At General Assembly, we had a, a lunch meeting that included a lot of actors from across the country in different regions, which was a, a great way to start building those connections in preparation for all of us gathering in New Orleans at General Assembly next year. And just, you know, we're all going to continue the work and continue to learn and continue to strengthen our organizing capacity between now and then the kind of the group of state action networks was approached to be a sponsor for Commit to Respond, but organizationally it didn't work because each state action network has agency and different methods for picking their top priorities for advocacy. So um, it didn't quite make sense to have that coalition of state action networks to represent all of them on a steering committee for a campaign just because of the, the lack of authority on, on what these individual state action networks prioritize. Mm-hmm. So I would say that some states have um, a much bigger focus on climate or like an intersectional approach to, like, let's say how climate will impact immigration or et cetera, different issues or um, relationships with indigenous sovereignty, for example. Yeah. I wouldn't suggest that we necessarily make the state advocacy networks toe the line some kind of policy, but rather use them as a means of communication to all local congregations. And there's another possible uh, avenue of 
cooperation and communication. That's the UN Envoy program under the UN office. If you can get a list of the UN envoys, not every congregation has one, but it would be a good way to uh, spread the word in terms of possible actions on climate change, since the UN is really the the place where we need to take these actions. So it sounds like we just need a way of communicating more with each of the individual congregations from a level that's established, you know, whether statewide, if a group would would be able to converse with the individual congregations, that would help spread the word more and create more action. And also feedback to the national level to commit to respond what the local congregations are doing or the states are doing, their particular action programs. Wonderful. Well, thank you, everyone, all of you, for participating and answering our questions today. Um, I appreciate you giving information to a lot of us who weren't able to be in Paris and to kind of get the inside feel of what happened and also a call to action to know what we, what the next steps are that we need to do as congregations and as individuals. So thank you very much. Hey, oh, thank you. Welcome. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks again for listening to the UU Perspective Podcast. You can catch Allie Tharp on episode 41, where she speaks about the young adults before they attended the COP21. And also, if you go to the website, uuperspective.com, you will find the links that were mentioned inside of this episode, along with the books that were also mentioned. Again, thank you so much for listening over the past few months when we haven't had any episodes going out. Uh, There's kind of few and far between at this point, and I welcome anyone who would like to be interviewed to please contact me. I will be happy to interview and upload and distribute that episode for everyone to listen to. So if you have an important topic you want to speak about, please let me know. And again, thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the UU Perspective Podcast. Uh-huh.